Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, February 27th, we are studying Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 12. As the opposition to Jesus grows from the religious leaders, so too does the confusion from Jesus' disciples. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us the Reverend Dr. Scott Murray. Pastor Murray is the senior pastor at Memorial Lutheran Church in Houston, Texas. He also serves as the third vice president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, serving in the west-southwestern region. Pastor Murray, welcome to Sharper Iron. It is a pleasure to be on the air with you, Pastor Apple. So, Pastor Murray, as we get started this morning, help us out with some context. We're starting here in Matthew chapter 16 today. Where have we been in Matthew's Gospel that'll help us dig into the text for today? Well, I, you, you have the feeding of the 4,000 immediately prior to this text. Um, and, and in the, the farther um, context, you have the feeding of the 5,000. Of course, that comes up in the second part of our, um, of our reading for today. Um, and then I think more significantly, um, chapter 16 and the beginning of 17 uh, gives you the high point of Matthew's gospel. Matthew has been working his way sort of uphill, if you will, uh, to the confession of St. Peter, you know, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then uh, you go to the transfiguration and this clear word of Jesus about going to his uh, crucifixion uh, for the for the world, and and then you end up with this you know six week career uh, toward Calvary's hill. So here we are at the beginning of sixteen, just as we're cresting the hill uh, at that momentous uh, turn in Matthew's gospel. And and so as you think of Matthew's gospel as a journey towards that crest, that climax that we'll get with tomorrow's text, well. What's the journey been like to get to that text? Well, of course, you have in, in Matthew's Gospel uh, this idea that, like at the beginning of 4, uh, that the days begin, the days of God's revelation of himself in Christ. Um, the, the section before that, 1, 2, and 3, of course, are uh, the origins of, of the Messiah's earthly birth and the visitation by the Magi and so on. Um, but, but then you get into this uh, issue of Jesus being ordained into his ministry, and then uh, you, have these, it, you have the discourses, of course, of Jesus punctuated by his acts of compassion toward those who are around him, and again, for our purposes today, the two big acts of compassion uh, are the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 as a revelation, you know, that he is the creator God who has all things in his hands and desires to take care of his people. And, and in the midst of those discourses, punctuated by the acts of compassion, you see all kinds of people grappling with the question, who is Jesus? And at least recently in Matthew's Gospel, it seems that there's quite a bit of confusion and even opposition to it. So the road to that confession of St. Peter and the glorious moment on the mountain of transfiguration, maybe we could say there's, there's a bunch of potholes along the way where it doesn't look like it's been such a smooth road for Jesus. Well, and indeed, even at the, at the confession of St. Peter, you almost instantly get Jesus uh, repudiated by Peter for his, his clear confession that he will go to the cross. And then you have those terrifying, earth-shaking words on the lips of Jesus to Peter, get behind me, Satan. So even his closest disciples uh, during, you know, during his earthly lifetime are, are kind of clueless. <laughs> Let's be honest. I, I often uh, describe the disciples during the earthly ministry of Jesus uh, as the spiritual keystone cops, 
they're almost humorous. And in fact, we in the second part of our reading for today, we certainly have one of those humorous um, uh, pericopes, one of these humorous anecdotes about the life of Jesus, where the, the disciples are all in a knot about forgetting lunches, you know, when they head to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And and Jesus is somewhat flabbergasted by this, um, and but of course takes it as an opportunity uh, to to be clear about his teaching and the opposition that he will face and the desire that he has that his disciples, um, you know, watch out for the pollution of their faith by the Pharisees and Sadducees and what they represent. So let's go ahead and take a look at the text for today. We're in Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seek for a sign. A sign will be given to it, except Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you? discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread. Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand, and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand, and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's our text for today, Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 12. Pastor Murray, as the text starts, the first characters in the text that are introduced to us are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, we've met the Pharisees many times in Matthew's Gospels. The, The Sadducees, not quite as often. Perhaps help us refresh our memories. Who are the Pharisees? Who are the Sadducees? How are these two groups different from each other? But then why do they show up together here? Right. So uh, they make up the majority of the religious leaders, and to some degree, of course, also political leaders uh, in, in Judea or Judah at this time. Um, the Pharisees, of course, are uh, the stricter um, of the two sects. Uh, they believe that Genesis through Malachi um, is in fact all the Word of God. Uh, Most significantly, uh, they believe in the resurrection of the dead, Um, and of course that most significantly differentiates them from the Sadducees. The Sadducees tended to be uh, of the priestly class, especially uh, gathered around the high priest and his family. Um, They uh, did not believe in uh, the resurrection of the dead, uh, and in fact, thought of Genesis, uh, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy as the only uh, divinely inspired uh, books of the Old Testament. So they only accepted the Pentateuch. Um, and of course, this caused great animosity between the two. Uh, it's interesting, this is the last time in Matthew's Gospel where Matthew will speak of them in the same breath. Um, and what he does is he actually uses... Uh, a single article. So, you know, coming to him, the Pharisees and Sadducees. So he's emphasizing the fact that these two quite different groups are making common cause. Later on in Acts, of course, we see St. Paul getting in front of the Sanhedrin. So it, it includes both Pharisees and Sadducees. And what does he say? He says, brothers, I'm brought here today because I confess the resurrection of the dead. And what does this do? It starts a fist fight on the floor of the Sanhedrin. <laughs> and so Paul is basically is able to escape their wrath because they're so busy uh, uh, fighting with it. It's, about, it's like the Republicans and the Democrats in Washington these days. What in the world could ever draw them together? Well, the answer to that is 
they have great hatred for the one they are approaching right now. And so despite the fact that they hate each other immensely and disagree enormously, they put all of that sort of behind them just for the purpose of approaching Jesus and seeing if they can make mockery of him, testing him or tempting him uh, to make some kind of theological error that will will, um, raise him to the mockery of the crowd. They're trying to separate Jesus from the crowd. Um, And this is certainly a a point at which Matthew is highlighting uh, the stiffening of that animosity toward Jesus. Um, And um, I I hate to put it this way, but, but these enemies of Christ are getting clearer and clearer on what their plan is and uh, how directly they have to attack Jesus. And so, you know, from the point of the end of chapter 16, uh, you know, you end up with, uh, you know, as the novelist would say, the plot thickens because the animosity between Jesus and the Sanhedrin, uh, or the animosity delivered by the Sanhedrin toward Jesus is getting much more significant. And now, uh, you know, there's a much clearer uh, desire on their part not only to separate Jesus from uh, the adoring crowds, but also uh, to perhaps do him to death and in that way take care of what they see as a big political and religious problem created by Jesus. What What is their fight with Jesus? Sometimes, I mean, we, we know that they serve as the enemies of Jesus throughout the gospel, but maybe we are not always clear as to what is the problem that the Pharisees and Sadducees have with Jesus that has them ready or looking for ways to kill him. Sure. So I think on the part of the Pharisees, um, Jesus' apparently cavalier attitude uh, to the law is disturbing. So no matter what kind of Pharisee you are, and and we could divide the Pharisees up into various parties as well, uh, they do tend to be highly law-observant. And when Jesus appears to be careless about the law, say, uh, by healing on the Sabbath or or, um, letting his disciples eat from fields during the Sabbath, uh, or uh, that he will make common cause with people that are unclean uh, ritually. I mean, there's this litany of these cases uh, in Matthew where those who would not have been able to approach uh, the court of the men and be in proximity with holiness are directly um, dealt with by Jesus. Uh, He has common cause with them. He touches them. He heals them. He has concern for them. Um, And so these issues um, make the so-called law-observant Pharisees quite angry with Jesus. I think on the part of the Sadducees, uh, they're much more interested both in the value of the temple trade, because they generally are getting a cut uh, from the trade going on in the temple. And of course, when Jesus clears the temple, uh, um, you know, of that trade on Palm Sunday, uh, then, uh, you know, this makes them quite angry. It's cutting into their pocketbooks. Um, And they're also concerned about keeping the balance between appearing to be uh, pro-Jewish and yet wanting to be um, seen to be obedient to Rome so that the Romans don't come and take away their place. So they're they're trying to be collaborators but not look to be so uh, in the eyes of the average uh, Jewish believer in Judea. Um, and, of course, Jesus is threatening to upset the apple cart uh, because the crowds are beginning to say, is this one the Christ? Is he the Messiah? Uh, is he the king? Uh, and, of course, at his trial, the, the Sadducees get the crowd to shout, we have no king but Caesar, uh, threatening Pilate. Um, but, but they want to portray Jesus as the, um, as the one who is going to try to overthrow um, uh, Roman rule uh, in Judea so that the Romans take care of this threat before it expands and perhaps threatens their cushy uh, collaborative um, uh, position uh, under the Romans. So these enemies of Jesus approach him, and, and Matthew is very clear that they don't come with innocent motives. He tells us that they are there to test him, 
and and they ask him for a sign from heaven. What is it? What does it seem they're asking Jesus to do for them here? Well, that's a good question. You certainly have um, Old Testament prophecy indicating that, for example, uh, that the uh, the Messiah would suddenly come to his temple. And already Jesus has been tempted with, hey, jump off the pinnacle of the temple and prove to everybody that you're the Messiah on the part of Satan. Um, and, and you do have cases in the Old Testament, especially on the part of Moses, who uh, proves his um, prophetic bona fides with signs uh, from God. Um, so there is some tradition of this in, in Jewish thinking. Uh, so they're asking for a sign proving his authority. Um, and of course, they're quite sure he can deliver no such sign. Um, I do think, especially here, you know, the wording is uh, that that he would, um, uh, you know, pr- deliver a sign from the heaven uh, to show to them. Um, it, it specifically, they're thinking of something in the the heavens themselves uh, that's quite dramatic and overwhelming and and. You know, you know, like the lightning, you know, strikes from from east to west, and everybody sees it. This is what they're thinking of. Um, now, of course, I would say even if God had done such a thing, uh, these inveterate opponents of Jesus would have found some way uh, to deny it, reject it, say that it was counterfeit or whatever. Um, so there was no hope that any kind of sign, it would seem to me, uh, would prove sufficient. Now, of course. In the case of the resurrection of Christ, which is the sign of Jonah, about which he speaks a little bit later in verse 4, um, you know, that doesn't prove it to them either, finally. Um, they are uh, great opponents of the disciples of Jesus who are running around saying, hey, Jesus of Nazareth is risen from the dead um, and and is now founding his church in faithfulness. So, um, you know, all of that's in the background uh, in this request for a sign from heaven. And the other part to this that I thought about, I do wonder if the choice of the sign of Jonah isn't also a way of dividing the Pharisees from the Sadducees, because, of course, the Sadducees do not accept Jonah as an authority. And uh, it also is a kind of earthly sign, right? Um, in the sense that Jonah is only rescued out of the ocean by being barfed up on a beach by a big fish. Um, That's hardly the sign from heaven uh, that they're looking for. And so there's a kind of weakness or even worldliness, earthliness, not heavenliness, about the resurrection of Jesus out of the guts of death, uh, bursting from uh, from the... the, um, the, uh, the, the, uh, the tomb there and standing triumphant over the grave. But, you know, his very dust is there or the dust of the earth. He stands upon it as we shall, as promised by Job. So, um, you know, you have this highfalutin requirement on the part of the Sadducees for a sign from heaven. And all he gives them is this wonderful sign, this humble sign of Jonah uh, which points to his resurrection, glorious as it is, of course, but still quite earthly. There's nothing. There's no bolt of lightning across the the horizon in Jerusalem at the resurrection. It's it's the guy standing there in the uh, in front of the tomb. Hmm. Yeah, there there is there does seem to be a bit of um, mockery of Jesus on his part as he answers them because they have requested this sign from heaven, which which in both Greek and Hebrew the word for heaven and sky is the same thing, and it seems that Jesus plays on that a little bit. How does how does he answer this request for a sign? Absolutely right. He does mock them. It's a little it's a little lost to us in English, um, as you say, because. Uh, our translators have taken that aphorism um, uh, from chapter from verse two and three um, and translated the word for heaven as sky, and that makes it sensible, I suppose, to us. But I do think he quite intentionally uses the word heaven because they've asked for a sign from heaven, and in a way he says, "Look, the heavens already are showing you a sign. You can read them, but somehow or other." You can't understand them within the context of this time when the Messiah is standing right here in front of you. 
Um, it, it is ironic in a way that we actually have an English aphorism that comes precisely from these verses. It goes like this, red sky at night, sailor's delight, red sky in morning, sailor's warning. And, and so, you know, the Bible uh, has given us this aphorism, and there's a fair amount of truth to it, of course. If the sky is beautifully uh, red at sunset, the chances are that the weather will be good in the morning. Uh, if the sky is red and angry uh, in the morning, the chances are that the weather will go downhill. Um, and and he's, he's mocking them because they know exactly how to kind of look at the sky and, and uh, measure the weather and, and prognosticate uh, what might happen weather-wise. Uh, and yet, on the other hand, they're standing there looking at the very sun of righteousness beaming in their faces, and, and they can't recognize him as the Messiah, or they won't recognize him as the Messiah, uh, standing there right in his presence. They cannot read the sign of the times. And so Jesus, he doesn't exactly tell them no, but he doesn't give them what they're looking for. And that brings us back then to the, the sign of Jonah. Now, we've heard him talk about the sign of Jonah previously. Why the repetition of the sign of Jonah here? Um, well, I mean, part, a part of the answer is that it's not exactly the same, because you do get this section uh, that's unique uh, in verse 2 and 3 before he gets down to the, the sign of Jonah. Um, secondly, repetition is the mother of learning. Um, the Gospels themselves, of course, are written in such a way that they can re be repeated orally. And I think Jesus had this in mind as he taught uh, the disciples. Um, but I think uh, Matthew's willingness also to repeat the sign of Jonah uh, is part of uh, the way of teaching through the Gospels uh, you know, that fit with the needs of the ancient learner, the true disciple uh, of the Messiah. Uh, now, of course, everyone who's reading this uh, from the perspective of a believer knows what the end of the story is. And so the reader knows exactly what Jesus is driving at with the ideal of the sign of Jonah. Um, and uh, the other part, of course, is just simply that the resurrection is so pivotal to Christianity. I mean, Paul will say, if Christ is not raised, you're yet in your, your sins. Um, you know, without the resurrection of Christ, the Bible's story about Jesus is a bunch of lies or nonsense at best. Uh, but with the resurrection, um, it certainly confirms the divinity of Christ and therefore the authority uh, of his teaching. You get the same thing in the prologue of Romans uh, about the authority of Jesus. So um, to repeat this word from, from Jesus about the sign of Jonah, I think heightens the anticipation of the reader about the coming uh, triumph of the Lord, the crucified one, who is raised from the dead and, and, of course, ultimately, his resurrection is our resurrection. So it's not merely the story about Jesus, but it's also our story. So that, uh, you know, just as, as Jonah comes up from the belly of the fish after three days and three nights, when Jesus triumphs over death, he basically rips the guts out of death uh, so that for us, death holds no threat. Um, and, and that's why, of course, in John, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, because in him we are raised. And I think all of that uh, is, is in the background of the, uh, of the mind of the reader, even in the first century, as they're, as they're getting to this point in the gospel. With about a minute here on this side of the break, and we can keep talking about this on the, on the other side as well, where do we see this same attitude toward Jesus today, looking for some kind of a sign and not recognizing what he's doing right in front of you? Uh, well, I mean, uh, I think you certainly get a clear view of the humility of God um, in faithful church practice, where, um, where our churches are stuck with, and you have to understand what I mean by that, uh, the simple means delivered by the Lord to his church. So you've got word, you've got preaching, you've got bread, you've got wine, you have water, you have the words of absolution, 
You have the weakness of clergy. You have the weakness of lay people. You have the sinners sitting in the pews. And, and the unbeliever who walks in says, what is the big deal? There's a few words. There's some clumsy people singing a few hymns I don't get. Uh, they mock this as weak, um, as doing nothing, uh, as incompetent. Um, and yet, this is the very weakness of Christ himself among his people, through which, you know, he discloses his wisdom um, and his righteousness to us. Um, so I, I think, and, and many, uh, many uh, forms of Christianity have failed to deliver the weakness of God uh, through, uh, through preaching this and through acting in a way uh, consonant with God's weakness, uh, for example, of course, in sacramental means. Um, and, and, you know, we're wired for grandiose things, you know, big, the bigger is bigger is better. That's the way we think. And, and God comes along and mocks our views about this and says, no, no, I think weakness and smallness and death are the very things that give life and glory and eternity. And uh, we get ahead of ourselves in some forms of Christianity. We get to the glory and the eternity and the power uh, but we don't get there through the means that Jesus actually gives. And this is, this is I think, unfortunate um, when, when uh, what claims to be Christian uh, goes this direction because it leaves people uh, floundering around, oftentimes, of course, in their own works. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFU. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. On this Thursday, February 27th, we're looking at Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 12, with the Reverend Dr. Scott Murray of Memorial Lutheran Church in Houston, Texas. He's also the third vice president of the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, serving in the west-southwestern region. Pastor Murray, prior to the break, we were looking at the Pharisees and Sadducees coming and demanding a sign for Jesus. Jesus is, is very abrupt with them. He's very harsh with them, says, all you're going to get is the sign of Jonah, and then, boom, he's gone. Right. He just turns around and walks away. And this is really, um, as you say, abrupt. Um, uh, this is showing, I think, a kind of disdain on the part of Jesus uh, for their methods um, and for their uh, faulty uh, theological presuppositions. Um, it also shows a kind of courage on his part um, that he's willing, um, you know, just to not only uh, mock uh, their attempt to um, make him look foolish in the sight of the crowds, uh, but also uh, that um, uh, he, he's able just to turn his back on them, uh, uh, despite the realization, the, the, real, the real threat, um, that they will try to kill him. Um, generally, you don't want to turn your back on your enemies like that. Uh, but, but Jesus has no fear to do this, and he wants to be very clear with them uh, how little he thinks of their approach to him. Um, and so the, this idea, of course, that Jesus is this wonderful, milk-toasty fellow that, that accepts everything and everybody uh, sort of dies by this, what we would think of as almost impolite departure on the part of Jesus from this discussion. Of course, ultimately, he's making the turn back toward his disciples, uh, and he, but he's making it very abruptly here, and intentionally so. So his disciples come back into view, then, as the text continues. It, it says that they've got to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and, and Matthew tells us, well, they forgot any bread, 
but Jesus has something else he wants to talk about. He he wants to bring out the leaven. What's the what's the teaching that Jesus is is bringing out here for his disciples? Right. So, um the the idea of leavening in in first century thought is generally not exclusively, but generally that leavening is a symbol of sin. Um and it works very well here. Uh, because he talks about the leavening of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Um, leavening, uh, when I was a child, my grandmother always baked bread, and I enjoyed doing that with her. I still found it astounding every time I watched her uh, to put that, that carefully kneaded little loaf, uh, little loaf into the pan and then watch it expand exponentially, of course, under the influence of leavening or yeast. Um, and so those few little grains comes in a tiny package, uh, has a huge effect. Um, and I think Jesus is warning them against the false teaching of the, the didache, as he will say at the end of the, the section, the false teaching of, of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and what a huge impact it can have on uh, the people of God, on what they believe, and ultimately on their salvation. Um, and so he is I, continuing, I think, uh, this abruptness, this disdaining of the Pharisees and Sadducees um, by talking about their false teaching uh, as, as um, you know, sort of blowing up the bread, if you will, uh, making, uh, making it expand and, and be poofy. Um, and uh, and so he wants his disciples to to pay very close attention. Now it is it's humorous, <laughs> you know, that they're they're all worried. worried. So who brought the lunches? You know, and, <laughs> and Jesus, you know, couldn't care less about this. And of course, he mocks them later on about it. Um, but he's interested in in taking the issue of the loaf, and this is exactly the word. It's not really bread, but loaves. Um, and, and using it as a way of warning his disciples. And they're still then, of course, arguing about, wait a minute, we should have brought lunch with us. And, and, and Jesus then says, well, wait a minute, where were you when I fed 5,000 and there were you know, baskets full left over? Where were you when I fed 4,000 and there were baskets full left over? Are you people not paying any attention um, and in fact, the word that he uses for know or understand at the end of the pericope um, is is the word that in Greek means um, to know or understand based on the evidence that's put in, put in front of you. And so Jesus is emphasizing, you know, you stood there and watched this, and you're still worried about whether or not someone brought enough bread so that we could have a few morsels here. I'm the one who creates these things. Are you still that kind of out of it? And and so you do get this mild, or maybe even not so mild, mockery uh, of Jesus. Why do you fail to understand uh, about this? And why are you afraid of not having bread, because I create it? And then finally, pay attention to what I'm really talking about, which is watch out for this dangerous false teaching, uh, legalistic false teaching, uh, delivered by the, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What what it, let's dig into that part a little bit more. What is this false teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Is it the is it the legalism, the denial of the resurrection that we were talking about earlier, or or is there something else that Jesus is is getting at with their false teaching that he wants his disciples to watch out for? Well, let's say it's all of the above. I think there's also a Christological element. Of course, the Pharisees have already said uh, that Jesus is the son of Beelzebub. Why? Because he casts out demons. Um, and, and they've watched him, uh, and this is, I think, what he means by the signs of the times. They've watched him do exactly those things that the Old Testament promised that the Messiah would do. They stood there and watched it. And then they turn around uh, and reject his Messiahship. So, so all the signs that he uh, is accomplishing um, precisely support his claim that he is the Son of God, that he is the Savior of the world. 
and that by his death, you know, he will reconcile uh, God and the world. And and now, of course, uh, you know, once you get Jesus doing this kind of thing, the whole legalistic game, you know, simply collapses. Uh, once Jesus is the Savior doing all, there's nothing left for you to do. Uh, your righteousness in the sight of God uh, is full and complete. And like many misconstruals of Christianity, the Pharisees and Sadducees wanted to center righteousness on the pious acts done by the believer. And if Jesus is the Son of God, then those pious acts are, are, are of no value unto salvation um, and do not um, make right in the sight of God. Um, the sacrifices, of course, become irrelevant because the one perfect sacrifice is there. And again, in the case of the Sadducees, uh, this cuts into their uh, temple trade. Uh, if the perfect sacrifice is a once and for all gift from God, fulfilling all other sacrifices by his death. Um, so there, there's a sort of panoply, a, a large um, ideal of false teaching there that eventually uh, rises all the way to the question of who is this man? Is he the Christ? And can he save the world? Which, of course, now, I mean, at the end of the very end of the chapter, which you'll get into uh, uh, tomorrow, uh, you know, you have this wonderful declaration, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and then Jesus is clear about the price that he's going to pay. Um, so all of that's in the background, I think, uh, as he warns the disciples against the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, because they will reject his Messiahship to reinforce their power over the people by way of the legalistic regime uh, that is being pressed on them. Hmm. Are, are the disciples, do you think sympathetic toward the Pharisees and the Sadducees? I, I've never really thought about this too much until just now, but I mean, previous, in, earlier in, no, in previous chapter, chapter 15, you know, where Jesus has that confrontation with the scribes and the Pharisees about cleanliness and uncleanliness, and they kind of tap Jesus on the shoulder and they say, hey, Jesus, don't you know you offended those guys? I, I mean, are, are the disciples struggling with maybe some sort of sympathy toward their teaching and they're drawn toward this teaching that Jesus is going to warn them so strongly here? I don't know about sympathy as much as fear. Uh, I think that's more the issue because, of course, the word had gone around that if people um, followed Jesus, they would be put out of the synagogue. Um, we don't think much of excommunication today. Big deal. Who cares? Um, but in the first century, to be put out of the synagogue was to lose your place in society, um, to be an outcast. Uh, to be shunned, uh, people wouldn't do business with you. Uh, they wouldn't. Uh, they wouldn't let you marry their daughters, and I mean all kinds of things like this, where uh, where it was really a big problem. So I think that the disciples know the power that these religious leaders have, and they fear it, um, and they also fear it for the sake of Jesus. And again, I think this is why. Peter quite genuinely wants to say to him, oh, no, not you. You're not going to the cross. We're going to do something about that, uh, because they do fear um, the power of these religious leaders and their ability to bring people uh, into the presence of the procurator and have them put to death, uh, or, as in the case of Stephen, uh, surreptitiously do it themselves. Um, so you can see why they might be somewhat afraid, not only for themselves, but also for their Lord. So this fear, though, and, and, and overall, though, it seems in this text, the disciples just don't get it. They're, they're totally lost. They're so focused on this matter of lunch that they, they miss Jesus' point entirely. And, yeah. and of course, Jesus, he's going to bring up the, the feedings of the, the 5,000 and the 4,000. Right. What's the disciples' problem, and how does Jesus respond to it? Yeah, so, I mean, they're focused on the wrong things entirely, of course. And, and, I mean, I find this deeply comforting because, you know, we find ourselves focused on the wrong things entirely. 
And even though Jesus will call them holigopistoi, that is, little-faithed ones, he doesn't mean to say that they don't have faith. He just means that they're little-souled or, or quite weak, but he's not rejecting them outright. So uh, I, I, I appreciate um, the disciples because I'm one of them. <laughs> I struggle too at times. Uh, I get my priorities in the wrong order. I'm worried about lunch and I'm not really concerned about the leavening of false teaching swirling around my life. I'm worried about my belly, heaven. Uh, so uh, so they, they're us and we're them. And, and I, I really appreciate this also from the perspective of the value of the narrative that um, these disciples are not painted in heroic tones. Well, who's writing the narrative? Well, they themselves. And so this has the absolute ring of truth. It would be like telling bad stories about yourself. Who does that except to tell the truth? Um, and this is exactly what's happening uh, in this text of, of St. Matthew. Um, Jesus, of course, is flabbergasted in a way. I mean, he's frustrated with them uh, that that they're so small-souled that all they can do is argue about who was supposed to bring lunch or why it wasn't brought, and and they're not really thinking of the big picture issues uh, that are most significant to him. In in the disciples and the fact that it is food particularly, I mean, obviously that's the that's the metaphor Jesus has brought up when he's brought up leaven. So bread comes to mind. But the fact that it's it's food, I think, is is worth reflection because it is, as I think as you said, it's our bellies that get in the way. Our bellies distract us from the things of God. I, I was as I was reflecting on this, I was reminded of, of the way Jesus speaks in Matthew chapter six, where he talks about not worrying about what you're going to eat, because your heavenly father is going to take care of that. Instead, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And it seems right. that Jesus is is teaching his disciples something very similar here, and and adding now this warning about the leaven that would that would take that righteousness away. Well, I, I think there's a couple of things here that are really helpful. I mean, on the one hand, then Jesus will turn around and use bread put into the belly to deliver his body to his disciples. Um, so. So, again, you have the littlenesses of God uh, highlighted by this. Like, who cares about lunch? Well, then Jesus turns around and says, I have a supper for you. What will it do? Well, it will give you forgiveness of sins, life and salvation. Uh, and, and so I find that uh, irony remarkable. Um, on top of that, um, uh, I, I, you know, there's a correspondence, I think, between the idea of the leavening of the Pharisees um, and the true bread that Jesus wants to give. Um, and, and so uh, the problem is truth and error seem to be really close together. And this is why he wants us to be orate, that is, watching out uh, for this, because um, Jesus is giving a didache. He's giving a teaching. The Pharisees and Sadducees are giving a teaching. And there's a great similarity in this. They're both religious teachers. And yet one is a life-giving food. The other is a death-dealing food. Um, and, yet, and yet he uses the same language about them. So what he's demanding or calling for or even begging for from his disciples is deep discernment so that they don't fall into a kind of legalistic way of approaching him, his ministry, his kingdom, his preaching, his gifts. Um, and, and, of course, it's only at the resurrection or after the resurrection and the, and the giving of the Spirit that all of this finally fizzes on them. And, of course, they become great champions for the truth of the resurrection um, and the faithful delivery of the divine word uh, on the part of, of the apostolic authorities who are delivering Christ's proclamation to the world. Um, so I think there's all kinds of wonderful interconnectedness 
you know, in the way that Jesus is speaking in the second part of this pericope, um, by by talking about the leaven of the Pharisees, and um, and this is one of the reasons why the study of this is so delightful. Where where do we see this sort of leaven today that would threaten the the true teaching of the church? Well, it's in my hip pocket, Pastor. <laughs> I've got this leaven. It's in my heart. Um, it is so easy to preach the law. Um, you've probably had the same experience as a parish pastor as I have. People walk into my office and say, Pastor, I have this problem. Tell me what to do. And it, it's pretty easy to give advice, especially when you don't have to follow it. And so we can fall into a kind of a legalistic way of caring for God's people rather than actually feeding them on the bread that comes from heaven, which is Jesus himself, of course, but also by directing them to the altar, to the font, and to the holy absolution, where it's not an obvious solution to their problems, but it is the solution to their problems. So um, all all of our Christian clergy are in danger of pulling all kinds of leaven out and and uh, um, messing up the loaf and delivering the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Um, I, I do want to uh, make you know point that finger at me first of all. Uh, you know we're all legalistic creatures. The law is written into our hearts both for good and for ill. I mean, you, you know, oftentimes you can't make that distinction very easily. Um, but it is so easy to fall into telling the, the pattern of telling people what to do so that God's happy with them uh, or to leave them with that implication. And that's why we have to be such careful preachers, uh, making sure that the gospel in the proclamation has the predominance or we'll end up delivering the didache, the, the teaching or the doctrine of the Sadducees and Pharisees instead of the teaching of Jesus. Now, you know, it's, it's like shooting fish in a barrel to kind of point out similar problems, uh, both politically and religiously in other religious institutions and so on. Um, that's why I would prefer, um, you know, just simply to state that I'm as likely as the next guy to poison uh, the Word of God with this leavening. Um, and I, I, this is why I emphasize to my own members, you are responsible to listen to what I say and compare it to what God has said in his Word. When that does not compare favorably, it is your duty to come to me and say, Pastor, you said so-and-so, God's Word says such-and-such, such. we need to talk about this. So, so our first priority is to be faithful where we are and make sure that our pastors uh, and our teachers are proclaiming Christ, Him crucified, for the salvation of the world. And, um, you know, once we've got all that nailed down, then, then we can take on somebody else. My guess is we'll be busy with ourselves. I appreciate the way that you laid that out, because it is—you're exactly right. The enemy is—well, as Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 15, it's what comes out of the heart. That's where right. the uncleanness lies. Right. And and so to see that in ourselves is, is exactly right, and you see the way that it works as leaven in that case, because it, it is very easy just to make that small move of, of I'm, I'm going to give advice as a pastor today. This is the advice that you need. And, mm -hmm. and sometimes that, that advice might be followed, and it might actually work. And, and so, well, what happens next time? It, you well, and it's advice. O yeah, it's okay. Uh, you, you know, even if you're giving truthful advice, uh, it may still well be at the detriment of the gospel. Mm -hmm. um, the law has its benefits and blessings in the world. Um, you know, go to work on time, show up on time. I, I think of, of um, it, you know, to, to give it a name, Joel Osteen, as someone who, who sort of acts like your mother on steroids. You know, be faithful to your spouse, go to work on time, be a good guy, you know, volunteer your time. What's wrong with that preaching? Absolutely nothing except 
it excludes Jesus and the gospel. And so it's not really religious preaching. It's simply good civic advice. Um, and, and we have to avoid uh, delivering good civic advice to people at the detriment of the gospel. Right. It has to come back to that, the, the right. true bread from heaven that actually gives life to the world. Pastor Murray, we have about three minutes left here on the morning. Give us a, a summary of everything we've looked at here in Matthew 16 this morning. Yes. So this is a wonderful, pivotal transition heading toward uh, the great denouement uh, where uh, we get the confession of Peter, the transfiguration, and then the clear word of Jesus that he's heading toward being crucified at the hands of evil men, uh, and that he'll rise again uh, to triumph over death. Um, And what's happening in this section is Matthew is making uh, much more clear the animosity that the the religious leaders have toward Jesus and his teaching in their coming and trying to uh, make him stumble in his teaching. And uh, then also because of Jesus' sort of abrupt uh, about face and and his, his walking away from them, Uh, that Jesus is quite clear that his work in testifying to these people is done and that they will do their work at the right time uh, to bring a conclusion to his ministry, exactly the conclusion that he wants. Um, And then by turning away from these, his enemies, he's turning toward his disciples, whom, of course, he finds being relatively incompetent, uh, just like us, and, but he comforts them, and then he gives them warning uh, about the, the enemies upon whom he's just turned his back and warns them against their false teaching for their own good so that, you know, so that they would always remain in the true bread that comes from heaven. And that's him. And all of that, of course, becomes perfectly clear to them uh, after the, the Pentecost experience. Pastor Scott Murray is the senior pastor at Memorial Lutheran Church in Houston, Texas. He's also the third vice president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, serving in the west-southwestern region, helping us this morning with Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 12. Pastor Murray, thank you so much for your time today. Pastor Apple, it was a joy to be with you on the air. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.